Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Chris Ria. Good morning, everyone. We're in the final part of our series, End of Days. Who's been enjoying this series so far? I just want to compliment Pastor Tony on the first two weeks of this series, doing an in-depth study on a controversial subject matter and offering us some great wisdom and insight from the Word of God. So thank you for that. But I got to be honest, when, when Pastor Tony came to me and said, we're going to be doing a series called End of Days and we're going to talk about the end times, my stomach dropped just a little bit. And it's because I've been preaching now almost 20 years, and in 20 years, I've never approached this topic, not even one time. And it's not because I haven't studied it. It's not because I haven't done a deep dive into it and, and looked deep, and that's not because I, I don't have strong opinions or things that I believe myself. It's because I've seen so much controversy around this subject. I mean, when you talk about uh, the book of Revelation, there's so many different opinions on how to translate it. You have the preterist view, and you have the histor historist view, and you have the idealist view, and the futurist view, and then you have pre, mid, post-rapture, and I've actually seen people almost get in a fist fight over this before, pre, mid, or post. So for me, I'm like, listen, I don't need all that stress in my life. But as this last couple of weeks have progressed and I began to look a little deeper, I actually have been really excited about talking about this and, and looking at this and, and growing in this area. It's been a lot of fun. But what I want to do today is I want to go through four kind of practical statements that we can all hold on to if we are living in the end days, in the end times. And one thing that's not debatable, you could talk pre, mid, post, you could talk about all different kinds of ways to interpret the book of Revelation, but the truth is Jesus is coming back one day. He said he was, and we believe that. And so if he is, or he is, and if we're living in the end times, then there's some things we can be ready for. So I want to give you four statements today to hold on to. Number one, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear as a Christian. I think the book of Revelation, when you read it and you start looking at the judgment and the wrath and all these things that maybe we don't understand or fully grasp how to interpret, it can seem a little scary. Some people, it actually brings fear to them, especially if you're not a pre-rapture person, if you're mid or post, or maybe you hold a different view. This can incite fear. What's going to happen at the end? Will there be chaos in the streets? Will I be deceived? If I take a coronavirus vaccine, is that going to mark me? Is the coin shortage a conspiracy to move us towards a cashless society and a one-world government? Is a digital chip implanted into our hands the mark of the beast? Come on, with, with a global pandemic happening and all these things around us, it brings fear into the minds and into the hearts of Christians. 
We're scared we might do something wrong. We might not know what's about to happen. We might not have be able to interpret. So, so what do these things mean? Well, first of all, I want to reassure you that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and soundness of mind. Soundness of mind is key. So I want to address a few fears, and I want to bring up the mark of the beast today. I want to talk about it. Should you be afraid of that? What is that? What is it going to look like? And there's a lot of articles circulating around social media right now regarding vaccines, regarding digital chips, regarding cashless societies. So I want to to address this a little bit. And the reason it, it, it kind of concerns people is because of a verse, a few verses in Revelation chapter 13, 16, and 17. The Bible says this, it says, it, which is referring to the beast, also caused everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and bound, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead. This meant no one could buy or sell unless they had the mark that is the name of the beast or its number. And this has caused people to speculate a lot over what this might be in our world that we live in today. But I want you to understand that the Greek word here, the Greek word marked or engraved, is the same root word from which we get the word character. So the character of the beast, you can interpret this, the character of the beast is now upon the people. Not necessarily a physical mark, but the character of the beast is on the people. So I think there's been a common misunderstanding of what this actually looks like. And I want to show you another verse in Revelation, Revelation 9.4. It says this, they were told not to harm the grass or any green growth or any tree. This is the angels were not to harm any green growth or any tree, but only to afflict those who do not, who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So now we see a seal of God, also a mark from God. So I think in that, the forehead is a metaphor in a lot of times for our thoughts and for our minds. And so what I want to do is I, I want to help us better understand this portion of Scripture. And what you have to realize is this. Just about every image that we have in Revelation has ties to the Old Testament imagery. The Jewish Christians in the first century would have interpreted this book a lot differently and understood the imagery way more than we can interpret it today. So to correctly understand, we need to look back into the Old Covenant to see where other kinds of imagery like this is being used or being talked about. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses gave Israel the foundation of their Israelite religion in a passage called the Shema Yisrael, or the Hero Israel passage. And Jewish people pray this passage every single day to reaffirm their faith. And this is what Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says. says this, Hero Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. 
These commandments that I give you today, which were the Ten Commandments, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, the chapter before has the Ten Commandments in it. It says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Here's the key. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. It's the same imagery that we see the mark of the beast. The beast says, we're going to give you a mark on your hand or on your forehead. But here in this passage, Moses is saying, you literally got to tattoo the Ten Commandments on your forehead or put them on your hand in order for people to recognize you as a Christian or as a godly person, as a Jewish person back in the day. No. He wasn't telling people they have to literally tattoo things on their mind, on their forehead, or on their hand. He was saying, your thoughts and your actions are important. That's what the forehead represents, your thoughts, and your hands represent your action. In fact, Orthodox Jews to this day, they wear a small box on their head and a leather strap on their arm. It's from this passage of scripture because what they are doing symbolically is they're saying, I want to think about godly commands and godly principles and I want to live those out in my life today. So when the Bible instructs us to write something on our hand or forehead, what it's saying is... Your thoughts and your mindsets determine your actions. And by that, you will be known if you follow God or if you follow the beast. If you follow good or you follow evil. So when Revelation tells us the beast puts his mark on the hand and forehead of all those who worship him, Christians in the first century would have interpreted that much different than we are today as a physical mark. They would not have been worried about technology. They knew it was about allegiance and obedience to either God or the beast. This is what they would have saw. Daniel Isgrig, he's a Ph.D., He's the director of Holy Spirit Research Center at Oral Roberts University. This is a long quote, but I want you to listen to these words. This is a lot of wisdom and insight here. He says, indiscriminate of a person's station in life or place in this world, believers cannot escape the seductive reach of the beast's rule. He is after us in our obedience. Loyalty to the beast requires accepting his mark. Loyalty to God requires rejecting his mark and being sealed by God. Through the spirit who is the mark of God on those who believe, we must discern the world and keep from being seduced by the world into taking its mark of ownership. In this way, Revelation is not warning us to not accept new technology It is reminding us that Christians need the spirit of discernment to not be seduced by the world's morals, values, or political and economic philosophies. As humans, we are easily swayed into idolatry. And if we align with these things too closely, it will ultimately demand our allegiance. 
Christians need not fear new technologies, disruption in the financial sector, or even government regulations that would seek to implement new restrictions on everyday life. You see, we don't have to fear those things, church. We don't have to fear this mark. Are we going to take it? Are we going to be able to buy it? We have an allegiance to God, and we've been marked by God through the blood of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we give the enemy way too much credit and we don't put enough, give enough credit to the God who sent his son onto a cross to die for our sins, to redeem us from our past mistakes, our past failures, to put his spirit in us and to fill us so that we can be marked by him and nothing can touch that. So that's number one, you have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. Number two, you've been marked by God. I want you to know something. If you are a Christian, if you have repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ and received his unmerited grace, and you have said, God, I want to live for you, I want to know you, you've been marked by God. And I want to show it to you in Scripture. Ephesians 1.13 says this, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is, deposit, who is a deposit guaranteeing. Everyone say guaranteeing. It's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I like the guarantee. We are sealed, church. We're marked by God with the blood of Jesus and the seal of the Holy Spirit. See, the mark is about our thoughts and our actions, our mindsets, and our beliefs based on our identity in Christ and our behaviors that represent that identity. Our thoughts and our mindsets are what mark us and those thoughts and mindsets lead to the behaviors that let the world know we've been marked by God. We've been marked. In the Old Testament, There's a scenario that's happening, and maybe if you haven't been in church very long, you may not have known the story. If you've been in church, you know this. You've heard it many times. But God's ancient ancient people, the Israelites, way back in the book of Exodus, they find themselves enslaved to Egypt. They're there for 400 years, right? They are slaves in Egypt. Egypt is the powerhouse of the world, and mainly they're able to get rich and powerful because the Israelites are their slaves. And so the Israelites are crying out to God to deliver them. So one day God sends Moses to Pharaoh in Egypt and he says, let my people go. It's time. You've had them enslaved for a long time and now I want you to let them go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let them go. I'm rich because of them. Why would I just let people go? 
And so he says no. And we, if you know the story, God sends 10 plagues to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. Now we look at those plagues a lot of times and we look at this from the, the standpoint of or the viewpoint of the Egyptians. But what I want to do is I want to look at it from the viewpoint of the Israelites. So here you got the Israelites going to work every day. They have their routine. They have their country. They have their world. They get up early. They go. They take care of all the animals. They build stuff. They come home. They have dinner in their homes. They have family time. They go to bed. They do it again, right? They have this routine. And all of a sudden, Moses comes, and all hell starts breaking loose in Egypt. Think about this. Now, the plagues didn't affect the Israelites in the fact that they got attacked by them. They were protected, but they saw it all around them. They saw it everywhere. All of a sudden, the nation they lived in, the people they did life with, were being, it was disrupted. The whole world was being disrupted. Do you think they were fearful? I would have been. I mean, frogs are coming out of everywhere. All kinds of stuff is happening. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is happening in our backyard. Life was disrupted. Life wasn't the same. They didn't, their routines were thrown off. We've got a taste of that with the coronavirus, right? Where our routines have been thrown off and the world is a little different. That was nothing compared to what they were experiencing. Is our country ever going to be the same? What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? Are we going to be taken care of? Are we going to die? Are we going to live? These are the questions that were surrounding the Israelites. They were fearful. I guarantee they were scared of what they were witnessing in the world. And then, in Exodus, we see the last plague, plague number 10. In Exodus 12, 12 through 13, the word of God says, On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of people, of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. I love this line. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So basically, God told the Israelites, put the blood of a lamb over your doorposts. And when I come, you will not be affected. Can I ask you a question here? If you've studied this passage at all, none of the other plagues affected the Israelites and they didn't have to put blood on their doorposts. How come for this plague, they had to put blood on their doorposts? I'll tell you why. It's a symbolic, it's a foreshadowing, it's showing us that the blood of Christ, who will be the official, sacrificial lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, that there's power 
in that blood. And that blood caused God to pass over the Israelites back then and protect them from all the destruction that was around them. And if he did it then, he's going to do it for us today. That the blood of Christ will protect us. It will mark us from any destructive plague that comes our way. We have nothing to fear. We've been marked by the blood, sealed by the Holy Spirit. You know what? I don't fear economic collapse. I don't fear a cashless society. I don't fear new technologies or vaccines. I don't fear political candidates who don't believe what I believe. I don't fear it because I've been marked by the blood of Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit. And greater is he that's in me than he that's in this world. So why do we fear all of these things that we see happening in America? Why are we so scared? Oh my gosh, this is gonna be it. This is, this is the end, this is what's happening. We've been marked. We have the Holy Spirit. We have nothing to fear, church. Nothing to fear. So number one, you've nothing to fear. Number two, you've been marked by God. Number three, this is now our response. So the first two are more about why we don't have anything to fear and that we've been marked by God and what he's done for us. But the next are a couple responses. Number three, you're called to intimacy with God. If God's people simply spent time seeking the face of God, worshiping, praying, and asking him what he thinks about what's happening, our whole nation would be different. Our whole nation would be different. You know, this is a polarizing time in our nation it's election time. We got, it's ugly out there. You got Republican versus Democrat. You got false narratives flying around on both sides of the aisle. Our leaders are smearing each other. Articles being shared that aren't factual. There's misinformation all around us. It's never been more important to ask God what he thinks of what's going on. Now, I love the word of God, and I love reading it, and there are a few verses in it, if I'm honest, that haunt me a little bit. There's a few verses in the word of God that when I read them, it just, it just haunts me just a little bit, and I try to avoid them from time to time, because they hit a little too close to home sometimes, if you know what I mean. And one of those is found in Revelation 2, 2 through 5. This passage of scripture, I'm going to read it. This is Jesus saying, he's, this is John's interpretation of Jesus talking to the church of Ephesus. And he says, I know all that you've done for me. You've worked hard and persevered. I know that you don't tolerate evil. You've tested those who claim to be apostles and proved they are not, for they were imposters. I also know how you have bravely endured trials and persecutions because of my name, yet you have not become discouraged. This is the verse that gets me. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the passionate love you had for me at the beginning. 
Think about how far you've fallen. Repent and do the works of the love, works of love you did at first. This verse gets me. It gets me. Because it's so easy to fall into this trap of I'm a Christian, I'm saved by grace. I live a moral life, but I'm out of the habit of passionately seeking and walking with my God. It's so easy to find ourselves in this position. And I don't want that verse to bring fear to you because what I love about the heart of God is he just says simply repent and do what you did at first. Remember, before you thought you had to work your way towards me, when you remembered that salvation was by grace alone. Remember when you let your love, my love for you, motivate you to love me and spend time with me. Remember when Christianity wasn't about politics or economics, but it was about me and your love for me. Remember those early days when you used to seek my face early in the morning and you'd open up the word of God and you'd spend time and you'd say, God, speak to me, and then I would. And we'd have these moments together. That's what I long for again. I don't need you to be the loudest person taking a stand I need you to spend time with me. I want your heart. Why is this so important to God? Two reasons. It's important to God because since the beginning of time when he created Adam and Eve, it was to have relationship with us. Then when Adam and Eve sinned, There was a separation between humanity and God and only a priest could go to God. But when Jesus came and died on the cross for our sin, the curtain was torn and we can go directly to God and talk with them and commune with them and walk with them and share our lives with them. But we don't. But we don't. That's why I think this this passage is so important. And the second reason I think it's so important is because if we don't have the intimacy with God, we don't really have any wisdom to share with the world. We have opinion, not wisdom. And unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians sharing opinions instead of wisdom from the throne room of heaven. And there is such a difference I love that we live in an era of content, podcasts, YouTube, everywhere. I love it. I love that I can be in my car and listen to preachers from around the country preach God's word right to me. I love that I can throw YouTube on and learn how to fix something at my house in 30 seconds. I love it. But I also know that other people's opinions of God and theology have replaced our own intimacy with God and our own study of his word. 
And when this happens, we don't have the wisdom of God to give to people who need it. We only have opinion and other people's thoughts. We need the wisdom of God, church. We need to know him, to spend time with him, to have intimate moments where he downloads his heart to us. Let me ask you a question. Have you, any time, in your prayer time, when you get on your face and you pray, do you pray and tell God, Lord, I know this is your heart and I pray against this or I pray for this, or do you simply say, God, what do you think about this? What's your heart about what's going on in our country? How should I respond? What do you want to say to people? Church, when we do that, we get a different response most of the time than we would think. And we need the heart of God. We need to download his heart into our hearts so that we have something of substance to share. We need that. You know, when I got married, my wife put this ring on my finger right here. In, in marriage ceremonies, what you do is you give each other a covenant ring. And a ring, it's a circle. And it represents a never-ending love. And it also symbolizes your love growing and increasing over the years and over time. It's why we give each other a covenant ring. It's symbolic of a never-ending love that continues to grow and increase. And when you put it on your finger, it sends a message to the world. It says, I belong to someone else. I'm taken. I'm off the market. I belong to this person and no one else. That's why you put it on your finger. But I do want to tell you there's nothing magical about a ring. It's symbolic, but there's nothing magical about it. That's just the beginning, right? Those of you who've been married, can I get an amen? That's just the beginning. This ring doesn't magically make you communicate amazing. This ring doesn't magically increase your intimacy. This ring doesn't make you a great husband or a great wife. No, what happens in a healthy marriage, and in unhealthy marriages, what happens is people grow apart and they become strangers living under the same roof. But in a healthy marriage, you download each other's heart every single day, or at least multiple times a week. You talk deep about social issues. You find out where they stand about everything in their heart. You pray together. You talk with one another. You grow spiritually together. When something hard happens in life, you face it together. And when you come out the other side, you're stronger. Right? My wife, I can look across from her at a table during a conversation and know exactly what she's thinking. 
Exactly. I know her better than anyone on the planet. She knows me better than anyone on the planet. She can look at me and give me a look and know I'm about to say something I shouldn't. I mean, she just knows me so well. Why? We spent a lot of time growing our relationship with each other years and years and years and years. Imagine the spiritual depth all of us would have if we had that kind of intimacy with God. If our intimacy with God was a daily, hey, I'm doing life with you, God, today. I need your heart for this situation. God, I need your wisdom today. What would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. Our fourth point would happen. We'd do some amazing things for the kingdom of God. And that's number four. You have work to do for God's kingdom. The other day I was on the golf course and I was playing golf with some friends. My brother happened to be in town. It was nice. We were playing golf together and there was four of us and we were doing a little two verse two competition out on the golf course. And we got to the 18th hole and everything was tied and it all came down to number 18 at Greystone Golf Course. And if you ever played Greystone Golf Course, you know that 16, 17, 18, they're amazing holes in golf. It all came down to number 18 and we smiled at each other and we said something to one another. We said, you know, we lost our, a good friend of ours, Gary Toivonen, earlier this year and he lived for these moments. He loved competition on the golf course. And we said, we bet right now that Gary's smiling down on us, excited to watch what happens on this 18th hole. And then someone said, no, he's probably going, guys, if you knew what I knew, get off the golf course and go do something for the kingdom of God. (laughs) And we laughed about it and we chuckled. But then I thought about it, and don't get me wrong, I'm all about hobbies. I think we need to refresh our souls with, with practical hobbies. But I also believe if we're living in the end, that our intimacy with God should produce in us the ability to do good works for the kingdom of God, to be salt and light. Matthew 5, 13 through 16, the word of God says this. It says, your lives are like salt among the people. But if you, like salt, become bland, how can your saltiness be restored? Flavorless salt is good for nothing and will be thrown out and trampled on by others. Your lives light up the world. Let others see your light from a distance, for how can you hide a city that stands on a hilltop? And who would light a lamp and then hide it in an obscure place? Instead, it's a place where everyone in the house can benefit from its light. So don't hide your light. Let it shine brightly before others so that the commendable things you do will shine as a light upon them, and then they will give the praise to your Father in heaven. When we're salt and when we're light, people will notice and give their praise to our Heavenly Father. When we're doing things the right way, people will look at our lives and want to turn to God, not turn away from Him. 
When we are living the right way, when we have the heart, the thoughts, and the actions of Christ, people turn to God. They see our works and they glorify God for them. Now, we live in an age where salt and light don't mean as much to us as they would have to the people reading this or listening. We have refrigeration and we have electricity. So salt and light don't mean as much. See, salt not only was used to flavor food, but it was used to preserve food. So instead of putting something in a refrigerator, which they didn't have yet, they would pack it full of salt. But if it lost its saltiness, not only would it, ta- it wouldn't taste good, but it would be detrimental to eat because it would spoil and be no good. The same way with light, they didn't have a light switch to turn on. They had to go through their entire homes and stock candles and oil and burn, use fire to burn through the oil. But when that oil went down, when that oil decreased, the fire would go out. So what I believe Jesus is telling people in this passage, if you're going to make a difference for my kingdom, your saltiness can't go bland and the oil can't burn out. And the only way I know for that to happen is to spend intimate moments with God. Purpose is always about what, who you are, not what you do. Who you are always sets up what you will do in this life. Who we are is important, church. And who we are is determined by our thoughts and our actions. And those are only molded and turned into godly things when we spend intimate moments with God. We need the mind of Christ in order to be the salt and to be the light that the world needs. And I believe if Christians really sought the face of God, really sought the face of God, we would have way more love and compassion in our hearts and people instead of hating Christians and turning against us would actually turn towards God and give him glory because we'd be the best people on the planet. We'd love so deeply and so fiercely. We'd have the fruit of the Spirit in our love, lives, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the things that happen when we spend intimate moments with God. I believe God wants to use every one of us right now. You got work to do for the kingdom. God's got a purpose for you. I don't care if you're in this place and you're 13 or if you're 95. I don't care. I believe God is calling all of us right now to be salt and light. That he's calling his church to get on our face and seek him because he wants to move, church. I believe we're on the precipice of a move of God like we've never seen before, and it's close. But it may not come the way we think it's gonna come. It's gonna come when we seek the face of God and his agenda, not our agenda. There's a guy, I don't know if you're following him, a younger guy by the name of Sean Foyt right now. Sean Foyt is a guy, he's had a ministry with his wife for a while now, but when the riots started happening 
and started taking place all around us in the different cities, and buildings were being destroyed, Sean Foyt would go to those sites and he would just begin to worship. He would just begin to worship. And he'd stream these worship sessions live on Facebook. And over time, people would start to show up and worship with him. And that's all it was about. I'm not here for politics. I'm not here to try to give you uh, any opinions. We're just going to worship and pray. That's all I know how to do. We're going to worship and seek the face of God. And something crazy happened. A move of God began to break out. People on the same sites where rioting and looting and destruction were happening were bowing their knees to Jesus Christ and giving their lives to Christ. People were getting baptized in the rivers around the neighborhoods where they were. So Sean decided to keep moving and keep moving and keep moving. And it's become a huge movement. He's planning in October, I think it's October 25th, to go to Washington, D.C., and they're estimating some 100,000-plus people, young people, millennials, to gather with him to pray. God's doing something, church. But what he needs from us is to not be afraid. He needs us to know that we've been marked by him and have the seal of the Holy Spirit. He needs us to spend intimate moments with him, to repent and do the things we did at first, to love and have a passionate relationship with him. If you did nothing else in this life but have a passionate, loving relationship with God, that's all you need. That would set you up for everything you need in this life. That's what he needs from us. And he needs us to advance the kingdom of God. He wants to use us to do that, but we've got to get out of our own way. We've got to start, stop thinking small. Like politics and economics is down here. We've got to rise above that and think godly, kingdom-minded principles that are way bigger than these down here. We've elevated this church in election season to be way up here. They're not. They never have been. God's principles and his kingdom principles are at work for eternity. And we need those We need his heart. We need to know what he wants. And when we get out of our own way and stop thinking about us for just a minute and seek the heart of God, then he says, listen, it's not about you and what you want. It's about what I want. And I want to bring people to my kingdom. I want people to come to know me. I want them to know me the way you know me. I want their lives to be changed and transformed for eternity. And I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it through you. But you got to get out of your way. You got to get out of the way. You got to stop thinking small you got to stop thinking like the world and start thinking like the kingdom of God. Thinking God-sized thoughts. And when we do that, church, these other things, 
they're going to become so small. The things we think are so giant, man, they don't have eternal value. What matters is souls in the kingdom of heaven transform lives, people passionately living for God, salt and light, that's what matters in the end days. In the end days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, the Bible says. That's what matters. A move of God, a move of the spirit. I want to challenge all of our younger people. It's time. It's time you get passionate about God. It's time you start seeking God's face for yourself. It's not about religion. It's not about politics. It's not about everything you hear, even what your parents saying in your home sometimes. It's about what God has for your lives. And he wants to know you intimately and deeply. And he wants to take you to a new level in him that you've not even touched yet. And he's got plans that are so much bigger than your own plans. But it's going to come with a cost. It's a free gift that costs you everything costs you your free time sometimes it means you got to get on your face and seek him it means you got to say no to things that appeal to the flesh sometimes and say yes to the things that appeal to the spirit God's calling his church he's moving and the greatest thing about this is the battle's already won he's bigger He's bigger than the enemy. We have nothing to fear. We've been marked, and he's huge. And I want us all to stand and sing this song as a declaration to close out this series together this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The battle belongs to the Lord. You know, when I was sitting in this seat just now worshiping, I so badly just wanted to end on a high note and fire everyone up when we left to, to end this series. But I just really felt the Lord stirring in my heart a call to repentance. But it's not a repentance of sin that I'm feeling called to. It's a repentance of forsaking our first love. It's losing our passion for God. I want that to be on your heart this week. How can I have, and, and this is not out of guilt. I, I think a lot of times Christians do things out of guilt or out of shame or, uh, you know, just out of obligation. This is not what this is about. This is God, I repent of relying on other people's opinions and thoughts and sharing those versus downloading your heart. I repent of small thinking and I want to know you so that I have the wisdom to give to the world. So Father, we just come before you corporately as a church and I lead the way in repenting. Lord, it's so easy to get caught up in doing ministry or doing work or getting caught up in life that we forget the thing that you long for the most is our hearts and a relationship with us. You gave everything to be with us. You paid such a huge price. 
and we're sorry, God, when we don't seek your face. We need you like never before, Lord. We need you to speak to us and through us. We need the spirit of wisdom and revelation to be in our hearts and in our minds. We need our thoughts to be the mind and thought patterns of Christ so that our actions and behaviors would be the thoughts and patterns of Christ. Help us, Lord, when we're weak. Inspire us. Ignite in our hearts a passion for you like we haven't known in years. I pray that over this church, Lord. That right here, right now, we would make a declaration that we're going to be a church that, that seeks your face to know your heart. Not seeks your face to get our will done, but seeks your face to know your heart, God. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for coming out the last few weeks. Enjoy this beautiful day. God bless you. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.